You may have previously listened to this podcast when it was called the PropTech Ramble, but we realized we were rambling about so much more than just PropTech. So we're back with a brand new series and a brand new name, The Measure Podcast by Metricus. Just like the last series, there'll be no bullshit, but there will be some rambling. I'm Michael Grant, COO and co-founder of Metricus, and I'll bring you a new guest every Wednesday for the next 10 weeks to get the measure of topics such as productivity in the workplace, building efficiencies, sustainable buildings, and ESG. No matter where you're listening, I hope you enjoy the new series and get some value from it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Measure podcast. Today, I would like to welcome Andres Guzman. Andres is the head of ESG and sustainability at Tishman Spire for Europe. Andres, welcome and thank you for joining. And could you just do a quick intro for everybody because you'll do it much better than I will. Cool. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me here today. So yeah, my name is Andres and I look after our ESG efforts across Europe for Tishman Spire. Tishman Spire is a global private equity real estate firm with around $60 billion in assets. We have a long-standing tradition as developers, operators, and managers of first-class properties. And we've also recently launched our PropTech VC fund, which is quite exciting. I've been with the company now for more than a year. And previously, I held a number of advisory and leadership roles with property consultancies mainly, but sustainability has been the reference point throughout my career. So I was one of those lucky people that when I graduated with a master's in sustainability, I was able to get a job with the word sustainability on it. (laughs) And when I was looking for a master's in, in, in this topic, there weren't really that many. I think yeah. if you go and type, you know, sustainability, MSCs or first degrees, you can probably get thousands now. And that, you know, might be a signal of the evolution that this topic has seen, particularly in the built environment. And I think given your background and where you've come from, so you were at JLL, you've been at Colliers, now you're at Tishman. I mean, you've got a lot of experience in this space. And we were saying just before we came on, you know, MIPIM was just on and the real estate industry likes to talk about stuff, but doesn't really take action. But your kind of career progression means that some of them are taking action and some of them are taking it seriously. So what kind of changes, before we get stuck into the questions, I'm just generally interested myself, what kind of progress are you seeing people take? And is it starting to accelerate from where it was when you first started to where it is now? I mean, are a lot more people taking action than they were before? I think, yeah, certainly in the last few years, there has been a huge change in how people you know, perceives their adoption of uh, ESG. So if you go back, you know, not that long ago, there was the assumption that adopting ESG was going to hurt returns. And I think the recognition that has happened in the last you know, two or, or three years is that actually ESG can make companies a little bit more you know, resilient. And it's all about managing what's material you know, to your organization, to your fund, 
or even you know, at the asset level. So I think there's always been a degree of skepticism. And I mean, you know, we've seen that recently. I think there's a bit of a debate in terms of what ESG really is and, uh, and what impact perhaps, you know, how is that related, you know, to the activities that you do as a business? And I think that can be quite, you know, confusing, but uh, maybe we can talk about, uh, a little bit about that later on. But uh, I think in, in, in yeah. general, the public perception around the environmental impact that companies are having and the social imperative that underpins, you know, those operations has changed dramatically. Yeah, I agree. And I think given all the legislation and the requirements and everything that's coming in and will be implemented, I think it'll get harder and people will have to do more and more. So let, with that, Andres, let's get stuck in. So the first part one is the rise of ESG pressures in the real estate world. So this is coming as we just talked about. But question number one. So everyone listening to this will know what ESG stands for, but what's your take on ESG and the positive impact it can have on the real estate industry? So we touched on this a little bit not long ago or just briefly but what do you think what's the positive impact because there was it was a negative impact a few years ago now it's a yeah. positive impact so what are you seeing what are some of the positives yeah so i mean look i think if you take esg as a risk management you know framework i think is done a lot of good stuff and by that i mean you know if you recognize again what's your you know material impact and what are those issues that are central you know, to your operations and you put some sort of like governance framework around it then that's going to be you know, good for business right that's going to yep. basically secure the long-term income of your you know, portfolio that's going to make you more attractive to a certain you know, caliber of customers or you know, tenants in, in in the case of real estate but i mean let's go back to you know the maybe the a potential tension with, be, between impact and ESG, because impact is something that we've really only started talking about in the last you know, two or three years. I don't think they are quite the same thing. I'll give you an example. You might have a, an oil company or a mining company that has a pretty robust environmental management system. They might not have any oil spills. They might have a diverse you know, board, but what they do as part of their operations, it's probably not going to be classed as environmentally sustainable, right? But they have the framework you know, to run their business in a way where they can at least you know, manage and report on those potential impacts. In the real estate world, I think we are seeing actually there might be a point where the initiatives that, that you're running, particularly around the repurposing of brown buildings, can mean that you are actually having a positive impact you know, in, in the world. But that's a very you know, specific you know, part of the market that we are tackling you know, with our value-add fund across the main cities in, in, in Europe. But that's a very specific you know, example. And, and it's definitely not you know, the norm. There's been a lot of you know, talk around how we as an industry can incentivize the repurposing of buildings as opposed to you know building from scratch incentivizing you know the circularity in the way we design you know those buildings in the first place so i think there is some good momentum you know around those practices that i can definitely take us to to the point where esg can mean you know impact but uh, look if it was up to me i would probably ban the word you know esg investing i think <laughs> There's ESG in investing. I mean, again, you know, taking yeah. into account 
I mean, you know, this is you know, what I do for Tissue Inspire, which is to take into account those specific risks at every stage of the investment, you know, life cycle of property. So we've identified what's material. We've now put some sort of like framework, you know, around our investment process, and we are making it part of, of that process, which is kind of you know, the best place to start. Now, from there to to claim that you have some sort of impact and, the, and that you're making you know, the world a, a better place, I think, you know, it's a bumpy road and uh, there's a lot of potential, you know, for greenwashing. Yes. So I think that's when you need to maybe exercise, you know, caution. Luckily, the European Council is pretty hot on this, on, on this topic and they're coming up with some pieces of legislation that have become effective already. And that's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to look at the financial market, you know, participants, you know, in the industry and see how they conduct you know their business and i think it's a great exercise for the real estate industry because it effectively pushes people you know to think about the concept of double materiality so yeah. not just how are you protecting your fund and your returns from the externalities you know in the world but also how is it that your fund is impacting on things like you know the environment and the communities in which you know those assets sit. So that brings leads me nicely on to the to the next question. So what would your advice be for organizations and leaders in real estate that are becoming a little bit worried about the greenwashing, you know, the fines that have been handed out? What would your advice be on on how to start to look at this holistically? How do you start to measure it to make sure because like you say you can't have the biggest amount of impact overnight, right? In the area that you work, where should people start to try and look at this? We need to incentivize more informed decision-making. And I think data is the key piece that can allow you know, for that to become mainstream. So yeah. I think you know, greenwashing happens to an extent partly due to the lack of data, partly due to the lack of knowledge as well and you know we also need to admit that you know, this is a rather complex you know topic esg means you know different things you know to different people and again you know if you're labeling something esg what is it that you actually mean we tend to focus on specific you know topics you know we rarely talk about esg as a whole we are probably talking about decarbonizing you know our assets we're probably talking about our you know, diversity and inclusion you know, programs. We are talking about our you know, social value programs that we develop around you know, a specific locality. And the way in which we're going at it is using you know, transparency as our main lever you know, for starting you know, to, to make those sort of claims. I mean, you know, to be completely honest, we haven't necessarily called say, you know, net zero, any of our assets, even though, you know, some of those will probably fit in the, you know, definition according to different standards. Yeah. We have come up with a, a way in which we can explain the energy efficiency, the embodied carbons, the upfront, you know, carbon, which is what we can influence and control. And based on that narrative, we are communicating, you know, to our investors how we're doing around the whole net zero piece. I think that's a much cleaner way to just simply say look we are net zero and that we're actually not going to tell you much about how is it that we are applying you know that concept across our fund or a particular asset so look i think in general 
applying you know, technology to help you collect you know, that data is a good way to, to go against you know, the greenwashing yeah. or you know, green hashing drive that are, in some cases is just going to be a, a case of semantics. Yeah, and I think what you said there is important is ESG is not the same for everyone. It's not a one-size-fits-all. So working out your requirements and your priorities as a company is probably the main place to start, right? Rather than just trying to do broad brush ESG across the board, hit some hit some key priorities first. Yeah, exactly. And look, I tell you, you know, recently we were doing our materiality assessment, you know, as a business, and then we recently created some regional ESG committees. So I'm chairing our European ESG committee, and we did the exercise of like, you know, analyzing what's the you know, material you know, for us as a region. And in less than you know, three months, we thought, you know what, actually that's out of date. We're going to have to you know, reshape that because there are certain pressures that are coming primarily you know, from the capital markets you know, side that we need to incorporate and bump up the, you know, the priority list. So when we say you know, assessing what's material you know, for an organization, it's becoming rather tricky because you know, the world is changing at a rather fast rate. And what we are hoping to do is to enable an internal framework you know, for us to collect you know, data, to collect market sentiment, you know, to collect what's priority for our key stakeholders. So we do that on a continuous you know, process. If you do a materiality assessment and you don't do yeah. anything you know, for a couple of years, you might find that your strategy is going to become obsolete you know, rather quickly. Yeah. So it is becoming a case of making it you know, your day-to-day. Yeah. And the way to do that is to obviously involve you know, the, 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 those key people in your organization that have the contact with those stakeholders. I mean, you know, from a leasing angle, for example, we're asking every time you know, that we lease some space in our, in, in our assets, we want to understand exactly what was it not just from an ESG perspective, in general, what was it that made you know, those companies go for our space over some competing schemes? And that is data that is starting you know, to flow. I mean, again, the committee is a really good you know, repository of all of the data you know, to, to then shape how our strategy you know, should move forward. And so I gather, as you said, reshaping after a couple of months. So you need to keep measuring what you're doing to make sure it's relevant as well, right? So important. So it actually leads me on again, great to the next question, which is the importance of internal stakeholders working together to achieve the sustainability and ESG targets. Now, I think you've just touched on it there briefly, but across the board, you chair the, within Tishman's by you chair the European uh, ESG committee. Then there's, I imagine there's someone in the US and someone in APEC. How often do you guys get together and what's the importance of meeting as a wider group as well as a smaller group? Yeah, sure. So we have two main vehicles to put some sort of structure around ESG throughout the company. So there is a global ESG committee, which I I sit on, and that's chaired by a global head of portfolio management. So we meet on a monthly basis. And again, it's a very dynamic vehicle because if there's something that needs to be addressed because you know someone in 
Asia, you know, picked up that there was a, a key topic, you know, for us to address, then, you know, the agenda might reflect that and, and, and again, priorities might change. But that committee is basically driving the guiding, you know, principles, you know, for our strategy. And then the idea is that, you know, we cascade those down at the regional level, obviously being flexible enough to take into account local legislation, local, you know, market expectations. And based on that, you know, define training needs, what is it that we need in terms of our systems, what partners, you know, we should be working with if there's potential, you know, for synergies in using, you know, the same people across, you know, different regions, then, you know, all of that gets communicated up and down, you know, those committees as required. But look, the importance of involving, you know, your own teams is, you know, something that we alluded to previously, which is you're not going to crack it if you're going to have a separate, you know, sustainability team that is responsible for driving, you know, a strategy. Right. If sustainability was my responsibility or you know, our global head of you know, sustainability's responsibility, we wouldn't necessarily you know, be where we are today. There's obviously loads of room you know, to cover, but I think the trick has been you know, to make the relevant people, you know, our acquisitions teams, you know, our leasing teams, our property management and asset management teams, First, you know, aware of what are those, you know, potential issues that they need to be versed on so they can address them. So there's a level of training that has been provided to all of those different teams specific, you know, to their disciplines. At the same time is how we change the way they do their day-to-day jobs. So we don't want, I mean, you know, I give you an example. So we don't want to underwrite, you know, something that doesn't have net zero risk assessed you know before it gets to our our investment committee right and the way we do that is working with our acquisitions you know teams to understand in what timelines we need to do certain assessments what are those you know key topics that we need to include in our due diligence checklists for example so when that document needs to be completed and they need to send it to their consultants or you know or completed themselves is as relevant as they as it can be so if I was imposing something on, on, on them, that's probably not going to be the best because I don't have full visibility on what they do. It's, it has to be a team, a team sport, really. Important considerations when creating a tangible sustainability strategy. Now, given what you do, these are quite good questions for you, I think, and important for people to listen to the answers and understand. So what is the importance of decarbonization efforts when it comes to real estate and corporate buildings? Well, look, if you want to attract institutional capital or long-term capital, there's no other way you know, to do it than proving that you are addressing the decarbonization of your stock. And again, you know, you probably need to do it in a way where you meet the expectations based on tools that have been getting a lot of momentum in the industry. For example, the carbon risk real estate monitor, which is something that uh, pretty much every single investor that we speak to is expecting to see in terms of how the performance of a particular asset benchmarks against the expected you know, curve that the current pathways provide. I think you know, to 
be able to to again you know attract you know capital even you know more recently we've seen that from a lending side as well i think the lending sector is very quickly getting to grips with the requirements around decarbonization and meeting you know certain short term as well as long term objectives so if you want to play with those guys and get that money you know you, you you need to address that i think the stats that i saw i think from you know savills recently you know say a lot about that esg ratings in the london market when you look at the highly rated part of the stock they represent less than 10% of the oh, wow. central london market or probably less but yet they are responsible for more than 60% of the recent lettings in that part yeah. of the market. Do you want to attract you know, good capital? Do you want to attract some good covenants? There's no other way you know, to do it. You have to yeah. embrace it full on. Those stats are pretty clear, right? 10%, but 60% of the transactions. So it's pretty clear. And the last question, before we get on to the quick fire question. So the last question, in your opinion, does AI play a role in helping organizations and their buildings achieve net zero in the future? It's given that chat GPT is out and all the things around AI and machine learning it, that, that the only question that I have around AI is this one. We were not going to go through these without talking about chat GPT, right? I cannot say I'm an expert on this. I can see how, I mean, I've personally started using you know, chat GPT more to enhance the way we use Excel. So it's a really good way, you know, just to simply ask, you know, how is it you can improve your macros, you know, to extract you know, data and present it in a certain way. I think what's certain is that obviously the world is going to be totally different in, you know, the next probably five or maybe 10 years. But uh, the way we are using it through some providers you know, right now is, again, in the context of operational efficiency and decarbonization. Yeah. So we've run a pilot with a company called Adefian, and they have a module that utilizes AI in certain you know, parts. So they use yeah. AI to assess the you know, predictive maintenance of certain elements in your HVAC equipment. And what they do is they basically read you know, from the BMS, they take a lot of data, and then they come up with recommendations after a period of understanding how the building works. So yeah. AI is helping you know, the module uh, understand how the building reacts to certain occupancy, to certain you know, weather severity and all of that. And then you get a list of recommendations. I would say that's becoming pretty standard you know, these days. The exciting thing is that the next step is probably going to be, and we need to get our technical managers you know, comfortable with that because they obviously have the final say, is to get the same module to basically overwrite you know, the BMS and they yes. will do that yeah. in real time. So it's basically, you know, the module has learned how the building works, now running a little bit, you know, the building. And, and that yes. will come with a lot of you know, challenges, you know, not least from a contractual you know, perspective. If it's not our own you know, hard FM people, then who's going to be responsible and who's going to be liable if yeah. things don't go according to plan and all of that. But I think that gives you an idea of where things you know might go in not necessarily the near future but in a few years to come yeah we're seeing it as well and 
I think the building automation piece, people are still a little bit skeptical about it. You know, there's the stories about the fish tank in the Las Vegas, you know, casino and all that sort of stuff. But that was just because it was on the open internet and wasn't secured and yada, yada. But if it's secure, it's working and you can test it in a small area rather than the whole building, then automation, I think, and AI automation could be key to helping us make smart decisions, right? And reducing the carbon emissions, you know, turning off floors. We're doing a project with Accenture and Avenard at the moment for a European asset owner. And we're already using the Microsoft AI machine learning to do predictive occupancy. Now, if you can do predictive occupancy, you can then look at your energy. And if you don't want to do automation at the moment, you can send alerts or you can write rules to tell people to take action on turning the ventilation down, turning some of the heating and cooling off. So it's already there. I think that will grow. And I'm Australian, so I like to keep things simple is start where you can make the quick wins or the the wins that people are happy to start to look at some type of automation. But even predictive occupancy, you don't have to automate anything to look at predictive occupancy of buildings, whether it's a retail you know, outlet yeah. or a retail building or an office building, you know, predictive occupancy could then also inform your, you know, your smart maintenance regimes and things like that. So I see huge amounts of value in it. I know a lot of people are scared of it. You know, Elon Musk and a few others said, you know, we should pause chat GPT to look at the real outcomes. But, you know, if we all were good people and we all worked with AI to make our lives easier and help us de-risk and decarbonize and understand our assets better, I think we could be in quite a good place in a few years. Yeah. Yeah, look, uh, I think there's loads of ways in which you know, this can go, but uh, the potential is absolutely there. And Great. look, I mentioned that pilot is because it has been hugely you know, successful. Yes. And uh, and that only took you know a few months you know, to record the investment. Obviously, you know, thinking about the next step is going to take not necessarily more a better understanding of the technology, but again, it's going to be more of a how is it that, that we as an industry can adapt or can change our processes to enable all the good stuff around building automation. I think that's going to be you know, probably the bigger challenge. I agree. I agree. And I think it needs to be done. It's just, like you said, the technical managers coming to grips with it, the fear of loss of jobs, you know, but if we're all on the same team and we've all got the same goals, then I think, it, I think eventually it will come. So hopefully sooner rather than later, but we'll see what, how time dictates that. Some quick fire questions for you, if that's okay with you, buddy. Let's go. So what makes you passionate about sustainability? People. I think your nature and people and how those two interact, I find that you know, quite exciting. I think that's what led me to a career in, in, in sustainability, you know, for sure. Cool. You've chaired ESG committees in the past. What's the biggest takeaway from one of those committee meetings that you've had? Bring people that have nothing you know, to do with your strategy you know they will come doesn't matter what level of seniority you know they have so we started you know i, I used to sit in a in a, on a committee for a, a a large asset manager and we started bringing guests you know from their company completely randomly and their input was invaluable you know it's yeah. very easy to start like kind of creating your own bubble once you start feeling a bit comfortable with people in your committee so make sure that you always bring someone external you know to keep you relevant and you know to make sure that we are <laughs> you're not missing 
Yeah, that's a good point. A good one. On the whole, are you feeling optimistic or pessimistic about the real estate world and how it supports sustainability and ESG targets? I think in general, I think you need to be an optimist. And the reason for that is, you know, being an optimist allows you to visualize where you need to go, right? The challenges are enormous. And even though I think I'm more of a pessimist uh, in, in, <laughs> in my day to day, I tend to be an optimist when it comes to you know, the climate crisis in particular. Good to hear. And finally, given it's called the Measure Podcast, we have to ask you, what's the piece of data that you can't do without to do your job? Do you know what? So the, those carbon equivalent that you can use to basically you know, signify how big you know, the carbon footprint of something might be. So I use a lot. Yeah. You know, the equivalent of one ton of CO2 equals you know, one direct flight you know, from London to New York. But you know, being a New York-based company that helps a lot you know, to quantify you know, what the real impact of, of things are. So yeah, that's something that I use quite a bit, probably too much. Uh, no, you can never use data like that too much, I think. Andreas, thank you very much, mate. It's been a pleasure to have you and pleasure to talk to you. We'll catch up again soon, I'm sure. All right. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to The Measure Podcast. Before you go, we can see a lot of people are listening and enjoying the podcast, but aren't leaving us a review. So if you've enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes, please head to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review if you'd be so kind. Please also leave us some comments. It helps us provide great guests and have great chats. No bullshit, no small talk, but valuable information to help people in their roles. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to The Measure now so you don't miss anything. Music.